Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by our patrons, Ellie McDonald, Jessica Smith, Jan Elise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Jill Harrigan, Maria Sanchez, Valerie Jacobson, Heather McKinnon, Chantal Oliver, Monique Harris-Pixado, Karen Remis, and Caitlin McTaggart. Thank you so much for being our patrons. We couldn't do it without you. You can become a patron for as little as a buck a month to help make more episodes happen. Exceptional women appear at certain moments in history and are moved by special forces. Men view these women as supernatural beings and their deeds as miracles. Indeed, women are bright stars whose light penetrates dark clouds. They rise in times of trouble when the wills of men are tired. Huda Shirawi, 1923. Wow, that's great. Isn't it? Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. <laughs> Those are the words of Huda Shirawi, a bright star who rose in times of trouble at the turn of the 20th century. And I've never heard of her. No, me neither. I hadn't. It's actually pretty amazing because you think of feminism at the turn of the 20th century. Mm. You know, you're thinking like suffragettes. Right. Um, but she was one of the global leaders of this movement. I was just Researching... lecturing my class about this yesterday. Ah, and really? how we have erased all of the non-white European-American women from this oh, massive no. worldwide movement. And yet, yes. I hear, I've never heard of her. Yep. Ah. Well, she's going in the next lecture, I'll tell you that. That is exactly what I was about to say. That <laughs> in the West, when we tell the story of women's suffrage... You know, we've got a pedestal, yeah. and we put up there Susan B. Anthony and Emmeline Pankhurst, you know, and, and then we say, and here's where it all started, Yeah, you know? That's awesome. That was just your class yesterday. Yep. And I think a lot of it is a, a Western bias, obviously, mm. because for the rest of the world, the story doesn't begin in London and New York. Mm -hmm. It begins in all kinds of places all around the world. And today our story begins in a harem in Cairo Whoa. in the late 1800s. Cool. Where little Huda, the child of a concubine, will somehow form herself into a mastermind, a leader, a chief financier <laughs> of a revolution. So big, so surprising, that it's almost tempting to believe in destiny. Cool. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. On the beautiful campus of the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, one of America's <laughs> oldest universities, I sat in a little garden okay. with... My name is Ifar Karakaya Stump. I'm an associate professor of history at the College of William and Mary. I'm actually a specialist of Ottoman history, women, gender, and sexuality in the Middle East. Um, yeah, so that's me. <laughs> I'm from Turkey. Oh, what part? Uh, Istanbul. Oh, yeah. I love Turkey. Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, normally I should have picked a figure from Turkish history mm. because that's my area of specialization. Mm -hmm. But then Huda Sharawi, she's from Egypt. Mm -hmm. I love her. She's one of my heroes. Mm. Uh, that's why I picked her, you know, uh, a feminist, one of the early feminist leaders in the Middle East. So that's what we are going to talk about today. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, uh, Huda Sharawi was born in 1879. 
Uh, Egypt was uh, part of the Ottoman Empire, but then in the late 19th century, I believe in 1882, uh, Britain occupies Egypt. And even though Egypt remains to be part of the Ottoman Empire nominally, from that point onwards, it was under British control, mm-hmm. British domination. And Huda Sharabi's nationalism, in fact, was all about seeking independence for Egypt and ending British domination in Egypt. Okay. Yes. She came from an elite background, grew up in a very wealthy household. Her family actually was one of the Turco-Circassian lead families that kind of historically dominated Egypt. Now, Turco-Circassian, that's a whole story in itself. The Turks and their rivals, Russia, were empire building Mm. all over the place. So Circassia, that's northeast of the Black Sea. Okay. So it's now Russia. And this is how it became part of Russia. And the Circassians were brutally defeated slash massacred. Mm. All the men died. The women were shipped out. Some were enslaved. Uh, some were married off. And mm. Huda Shirawi's mom was one of those married off to an Egyptian man. Our number one source for all of this is Huda Shirawi herself. Yay. She wrote memoirs. Oh, Awesome. I loved them. They're transporting. So I'm going to read excerpts from them today. Oh, you know how I love me an autobiography. Yep. Order it yesterday. You're going to love it. Mm. She said she had two mothers, her biological mother, but then her father's legal wife, who she called Um Kabira, which means big mother. And she loved her too. Hmm. And she had an older brother, and they all lived in a harem. Mm -hmm. The Memoirs of Huda Shirawi. During feast times, we passed the long evenings in large gatherings at home. We would sit on mattresses around a huge lantern. Electricity was still rare in Egypt while our nurses and nursemaids regaled us with stories of their capture and tales of their homelands, till sleep overtook us and we were carried off to bed. She received a very good education, private, of course. Initially, she was tutored in both Turkish and French. Of course, she knew Arabic, and she wrote letters in English. Her her English is a lot better than mine. So it's unbelievable. I mean, she was obviously a very, very intelligent woman. So so I think there's something very special about her. But this is the late 1800s. So we know how this is going to play out. Yeah, she's a girl. Mm -hmm. Yep. Her brother, he's the golden child. He's the one everyone loves. You know, they almost treat him as if he's a, a fragile, precious thing mm. that must be protected, whereas she's just the girl. Who cares? Right. Support staff. Yes. She really resented him growing up. And I don't blame her. Yeah. She describes this one time when she gets extremely sick. Mm. Nobody really cares. Mm. But then a couple weeks in, her brother gets it. <gasps> and then the whole household is thrown into a panic Mm. her mothers are weeping and Uh. there's a a team of doctors brought in constantly attending to him and they're in the same sick room (laughs) but nobody is even looking at her Uh. it's always only Uh. him disposable daughters yeah When my brother was about seven years old, the doctor advised he should be given a pony. Apart from being a noble sport, riding made the body strong and stimulated the functioning of internal organs without being unduly exhausting. I asked for a pony as well, so I could learn to ride like my brother, but was told riding was not suitable for girls. The daughter of our neighbor, Lami Bay, an army officer rode a pony, I quickly answered, and drove a small cart as well. When my mother failed to persuade me girls should not ride, she asked me to choose between a pony or a new piano, knowing my passion for music. She won because I chose the piano, but I said to myself, I shall get a new piano 
and ride my brother's pony. She would sneak into her brother's private tutoring sessions just because she was so like, like eager to learn and then she, she would just read everything. But he also was her only real companion. Hmm. There was this moment that she describes where they were kind of bound together. Her father died quite early. I think she was five and her brother was like seven. Hmm. And she knew her father had died, but but the family had opted not to tell her brother for some reason. They thought he was too fragile. And he, he didn't know for months and months. And so the brother goes to Huda and says, boy, our dad has been gone on business a really long time. Oh. And she told him the truth. Mm. Nobody else would. And that bonded them together wow. forever. So even though he kept being the golden child, it was kind of alliance between the two of them against all the grown-ups and, right. know, and the whole world around them. Mm. Then she turned 11. From the time we were very small, my brother and I shared the same friends, nearly all boys, most of whom were the children of our neighbors. The boys remained my companions until I grew up. That is, until I was about 11 when suddenly I was required to restrict myself to the company of girls and women. I felt a stranger in their world. Their habits and notions startled me. Being separated from the companions of my childhood was a painful experience. Their ways left a mark on me. The harem. Even that word, it just paints so many pictures. Mm. Like, what do you picture? Yeah, so we have the p- women lounging around on cushions and yes. and then, of course, the wooden screens. So you can peek yeah. out at the world, but no one can see you. And it's all enclosed. The realities, of, of course, were quite different. Lots of yeah. industry and work and so life going on inside, but... The paintings. Yeah. <laughs> right. The Victorian paintings show just a lot of laying around. Yeah. And that's funny because we heard that excerpt from the memoirs where they are just lounging on pillows <laughs> and listening to the stories regaled by their enslaved nannies. Yeah. We get all these images of the harem. It's actually fascinating <laughs> detail that Huda Sharawi gives us in her memoirs. She tells us where we get those pictures from of like lounging women and grapes and exotic music and belly dancing, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. They, they didn't come from nowhere. Foreigners not infrequently departed from Egypt under the mistaken impression they had visited the houses of respectable families, when in truth they'd fallen into the hands of profiteers who, under the guise of introducing them into the harems of great families, had in fact led them merely to gaudy brothels. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that cool? That's amazing. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Uh, The women never leave the harem unveiled. And in Egypt at this time, that means you've got the headscarf and, of course, your entire body, but also your face. Mm. It's a a loose veil that you, like, pin from ear to ear, but it hangs down quite far. So only your eyes are showing. And that's what you do if you're going to go out in public. Mm. Interestingly, this part of women's history is little known because, I mean, the image of Middle Eastern women that we have is... One of, you know, like victims and uh, dependent, powerless yeah. objects of misogynist men or, you know, like that's the sort of stereotypes that we associate with Middle Eastern women. And of course, subordination and patriarchy are parts of their reality. That is, uh, uh, you know, no one can deny that. But that's not the whole picture. Veil was a sign of, uh, you know, upper class status. Oh. Right. And this is one of the things that people get wrong about the veil, you know, um, usually in rural areas, uh, like peasant women or nomadic women would not be able to afford, you know, staying at home or, or wearing a veil, right? They had to go out and work. Just similarly in, in urban centers, right? Lower class women, you know, they would have to go and work. It's really only the upper class women who could afford to stay at home and veil. So this is a fascinating world, the harem. 
women-centric, very closed off. But in that domestic world, women have so much control. Huda Shirawi had tutors to teach her all of the lady skills, you know, singing, <laughs> piano. She loved playing the piano. She said she would play for hours every night. Hmm. You know, all the lovely domestic skills. But her true kindred spirit in all of it was a, a woman named Madame Richard. <laughs> she had eyes as dark as night and coal black hair. Her charm and refinement surpassed even her beauty. A woman of loyalty and integrity, she showered us with love. In me, she saw a physical resemblance to my father, as well as a similarity in character. Madame Richard played an important role in my upbringing. During her stays, she would check the progress of our lessons and encourage us in all our studies. Always sad to leave us, she returned often to take us on outings. As my feelings for her grew, some of the household showed their displeasure. Um Kabira once said to me, Why do you love this Christian so much? To which I replied that she wasn't a Christian. Is she a Muslim then? No, I responded. She's Madame Richard. Everyone laughed. When she was 13, her family started talking marriage. Hmm. When she was 13. Yeah. And she was just consistently like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but then one day, three men showed up at the door. And I retreated to my window, where I stood with my back to them. To my utter astonishment, Ali Pasha Fami announced, The son of your father's sister wants your hand in marriage, and we are here on his behalf. With my back to the men, I cried without speaking or moving. I stood sobbing by the window for nearly three hours. Eventually, Said Aga whispered in my ear, Do you wish to disgrace the name of your father and destroy your poor mother, who was weeping in her sickbed and might not survive the shock of your refusal? Upon hearing these words, which pierced my heart, I replied, Do whatever you want and rushed immediately to my mother's room, scraping my head on a nail on the side of the door in my haste. Bleeding and about to faint, I must have been a pitiful sight. My friend and others around me wept. My spirit was broken, and I spent the rest of my stay in Helwan with my eyes full of tears. My two young companions used to accompany me, but I often left them to wander off in the distance alone, where I pondered how I could avoid the marriage. When I shared my thoughts with my companions, the elder, who believed in sorcery, said a magic spell would be cast upon me so that I would accept tomorrow what I rejected today. I tried in vain to disabuse her of this. Instead of a magic spell, in the end, she negotiated a deal. And she, she refused, refused to, get to marry him unless he gave up all other women. Mm. She wanted a monogamous marriage, and she was like in her early teens at the mm. time, right? He agreed, and so the wedding was on. Mm. She was 14. Oh, I have a 14-year-old. <laughs> he is not ready to be married. The three nights of wedding festivities with their music and gaiety expelled my melancholy and kept me from thinking of what was to come. On the night of the wedding ceremony, the rapt attention focused on me, especially by my friends, increased my joy so much I almost leaped with delight while I donned my wedding dress, embroidered in thread of silver and gold. I was spellbound by the diamonds and other brilliant jewels that crowned my head and sparkled on my bodice and arms. All of this dazzled me and kept me from thinking of anything else. My attendants supported me while the heavy jewels pressed down on my head and the wedding dress hung heavy on my small frame. I walked between rows of bright candles with rich scents wafting in the air to the grand salon where I found a throng of women, Egyptians and Europeans. They all turned and looked at me with affection. When I raised my head to ease the heavy tiara back a little, I heard a woman's voice whispering, My daughter, lower your head and eyes. I 
I then sat down on the bridal throne, surrounded by flickering candles and decorated with flowers, fancying I was in another world. Next, a dancer appeared and started to perform in front of me. She then made the rounds of the guests, dancing in front of the women one at a time. They would take out coins, moisten them with their tongues, and paste them on the dancer's forehead and cheeks. Suddenly, a commotion erupted outside the great hall. The dancer rushed out, emitting a string of sagrudas, the tremulous trills hanging in the air after her. To the roll of drums, the women hastened out of the room or slipped behind curtains while the eunuch announced the approach of the bridegroom. In an instant, the delicious dream vanished and stark reality appeared. Faint and crying, I clung to the gown of a relation who was trying to flee like the others, and I pleaded, don't abandon me, take me with you. My French tutor, who was at my side, embraced me. Madame Rouchard, supporting me on the other side, wept as she tried to console me with her tender words. After praying on a mat of red velvet embossed with silver, he came to me, and lifting the veil from my face, kissed me on the forehead. He led me by the hand to the bridal throne and took his place beside me. All the while I was trembling like a branch in a storm. The groom addressed a few words to me, but I understood nothing. She was only with him for a short while when she discovered her husband had not, in fact, become monogamous. <gasps> this is my shocked face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that gave her hope because she was like, the deal is off. Uh, and she went straight back home. Wow. For some time, we believed that I was divorced. However, we later discovered we had not properly understood it. The document stipulated that my husband relinquished the right to take any wife other than me. During those days of misunderstanding and controversy, I spent my time in play, taking little notice of the discussions between my mother and my husband. I was determined not to return to him, whatever happened. Everybody was pressuring her to go mm. back there like, this is a family humiliation, you know, this whole, whole right. shebang. But her brother backed her. And mm -hmm. he said, I'll be here to support her. I won't marry. I will stay here and be the head of the family. She does not have to go back. Whoa. And so she got to stay. She spent years soaking up all the education she could wow. with the support of her older brother. She joined women's salons, intellectual clubs, safe inside the harem, where they could talk about all kinds of radical things and no man was going to hear. Cool. <laughs> As mistress of the salon, Madame Rushdie adroitly guided the discourse from issue to issue. There were debates about social practices, especially veiling, she confessed that although she admired the dress of Egyptian women, she thought the veil stood in the way of their advancement. Around the same time when feminist movements gained traction in Europe, we actually have feminist agitations in the Ottoman Empire. And not all of them choose to use the term feminist because at this point, of course, feminism is associated with radicalism, extremism, and that sort of stuff. But there are a group of brave women who come out and say, yes, we are feminists. And if you have any problems with it, go deal with it. Thanks to this supportive circle of feminists and the support of her brother, mm. Huda has seven years of freedom and learning. Yeah. But all this time, the family has been bearing down on both of them. Mm. And finally, they cave. Huda returns to her husband, mm. and her brother goes on to an arranged marriage. But she's got knowledge now. She is armed with seven years of education. Now she's 21 yeah. instead of 14. Right old age of 21. <laughs> yeah. She takes her money, 
she takes her influence as the wife of this very wealthy, powerful guy, and she goes, Okay, ladies, <laughs> it's time. Yeah! <laughs> So she was a very wealthy woman, and she used her own money to, to create all these programs. She, in 1908, she opened the first secular philanthropic organization in Egypt with the intent of serving women. She opened medical dispensaries, and also she started a lecture series for women at the Egyptian University. And then in 1910, she opened the first girls' school that offered a general education for girls rather than a vocational training. She ran uh, programs for uh, widows, where she would give them financial assistance monthly. Yeah, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. This is all with her own money. Reading the women's journals that she read, man, you can see that they are consciously building something huge. This one is an article that was published in 1911 by Fatma Nisibe. She says, she writes, quote, Pay attention to every corner of the world. We are on the eve of a revolution. Be assured, this revolution is not going to be bloody and savage like men's revolution. On the contrary, it will be pleasant and relatively quiet, but definitely productive. You must believe this, ladies." Unquote. It's so great. The female students that I had with me, you, you could see they were just visibly thrilled yeah. at that passage. We were all just, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, I love these women's uh, journals. And, and when I first discovered them and, and I read them for my master's thesis, I was exactly the same way. I'm like, whoa, go, you know. Um, so, I mean, clearly they were aware that, you know, something was changing, right? And this global. was a worldwide, a global yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And that's what makes it really interesting. And, and Huda Sharabi is definitely, I mean, she was in person, like attending these international women's conferences. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, in 1914, she became one of the founders of the Intellectual Association of Egyptian Women. She's making waves. And she has two kids, a daughter and a son, both of whom have pretty close brushes with death. And so, like any good 19th century family, they travel to, uh, to yeah. take the air. Right. And so, in her desperation to save her children, she's also kind of accidentally seeing the world. Mm. She goes to France and all across Europe right before World War I hits. Mm. She goes to Turkey and she meets these distant Circassian family members. Mm. And I think in that moment, that must have inspired her to, to rethink what is my mother's story mm. right? to be Circassian and fighting this war and then you lose yeah. and suddenly you're shipped off to Egypt and you and you have this arranged marriage. Wow. Mm. And she thinks of her mom and her mom at this point is sickly, kind of elderly, and she's back home and she races back to get to her mm. in time, but only just too late. Oh. I grieved deeply at my loss of this dear woman, toward whom I felt both the love of a daughter and the love of a mother. These two feelings co-mingled during the time I cared for her in her long illness. At the end, I felt like an orphan and a bereaved mother at the same time. It was a strange, anguished feeling that rent me, and I thought it was the greatest sorrow I would ever experience. I never imagined fate was harboring a blow still more cruel the death of my dear brother and my only support. I bore that blow as I have borne others. Yet I thanked God for taking my mother before my brother. My brother tried to compensate for what I lost as if he had a premonition I would soon be deprived of him as well. The loss of her brother was catastrophic mm. to her. You know, nothing could get her out of bed. Nothing mm. was worth living for at all. And then World War I ended. 1919 dawns. And suddenly the whole of Eurasia is reshaping itself mm. and shifting borders. And the Ottoman Empire is crumbling. And Huda finds something to live for. 
what happens is after the war, um, and in part inspired by Woodrow Wilson's 14 principles and, you know, this idea of self-determination, a group of Egyptian notables say, you know, we want to represent Egypt in the Paris Peace Conference because they are hoping that they will get independence, right? This is the deal, right? Self-determination. Uh, but of course, they are denied. Their request is denied. And the leader of this delegation, uh, now, in delegation in Arabic, the word is waft. And this group comes to be known as the waft. But the leader of this delegation, Saad Zaglu, uh, he's exiled and their request is denied. And when that happens, public riots, strikes, and the demonstrations erupt all over Egypt. Several hundred civilians are killed uh, by the British. The British claimed our national movement was a revolt of the Muslim majority against religious minorities. This slander aroused the anger of the Copts and other religious groups. Egyptians showed their solidarity by meeting together in mosques, churches, and synagogues. Sheikhs walked arm in arm with priests and rabbis. Eventually, Britain is forced to allow uh, this Egyptian delegation to appear before the Paris Peace Conference. Not that it helped much, but, you know, they, they were at least physically there. So now, the new party, the Waft Party, is legitimate. I know about the Waft. You do? Yeah. They're in a Poirot. Oh, as kind of <laughs> the bad guys, but <laughs> ooh, oh, they would be the bad guys in a Poirot. Yeah, they're they totally the would be. the one where he has to find the the ruby necklace for the terrible Egyptian prince, mm. because it's the waft that have stolen the necklace from him in an attempt to oh. finance their own revolution against him, and then Poirot finds it and gives it back to him under great duress. He really doesn't want to, but. He's principal. Well, he's loyal to the British that saved him during the war, so he has to help them, but he makes it known that this dude is terrible and should not be in charge. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, now I'm telling you the story from the other side. Ha -ha. Okay, so now the Waft Party, now they're going to try to push their way forward. They're going to try to get elected and push for Egyptian independence. All the women involved in the party say, Yes, independence and rights for women, too, right? Don't forget that part. That's <laughs> an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Waft party is like, oh, yes, of course. Yes, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> Classic. And then Huda Sharawi was elected as president of the Waftist Women's Central Committee. So the party had a women's uh, branch and Huda Sharawi was the head of it. The British protectorate does its thing, suppressing the party arresting its leaders, among its leaders, Ali Sharawi, her husband. Mm. Huda Sharawi specifically writes a letter to the wife of the British High Commissioner, whom she knows personally. Mm. And I mean, if you want, I can read that letter just yes, so that you, you know what kind of a person she was and how uh, perfect her English was. Mm. <laughs> Dear Madam, in these sorrowful times that my country is passing through, I would like to remind you of our conversation last summer. At that time, you assured me that Great Britain was innocent and meant no harm by participating in this war. Great Britain, you said, did not participate except to serve the cause of justice and humanity and to defend the freedom of the oppressed nations and to protect their rights. Would you tell me whether this is still your opinion today? What do you think, madam, of your government giving itself the right to impose curfews in a time of peace here in Egypt and to banish persons who have committed no crime except to want to live freely in their own country. What can you say about your own soldiers who roamed the quiet streets of Egypt with revolvers and machine guns firing at unarmed people if those people's voices are raised to ask for justice and liberty? Do all these deeds, madam, result from Britain's efforts to serve justice and humanity? Remember also, madam, that if a group of young Egyptian boys throw stones at store windows, they are only following the examples set by your own, quote, civilized, unquote, soldiers not long ago. Please, madam, accept my heartfelt sentiments of sorrow and my personal regards. Huda Sharabi, March 16, 1919. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just amazing stuff. 
lock up the men and we've got them, seems like to be the British strategy. Because what can the women do from the harems? Nothing. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> Huda could see the problem also. How are we going to push for our independence by writing letters from the harems? The British are never going to listen to that. So, she said, it's time, ladies. We need to leave the harems. We need to stage a massive women's demonstration to show the British that we will not be silenced. About 350 upper-class Egyptian women, they marched in the streets. Wow. I would love to see it. Yeah. They're coming out by the hundreds and marching through the streets. Wow. And local students at the university in Cairo came out to support their movement. <laughs> we assembled according to the plan at the Garden City Park where we left our carriages. We set out in columns toward the legation of the United States and intended to proceed from there to the legations of Italy and France. And there's a standoff. British troops surrounded us. They blocked the streets with machine guns, forcing us to stop, along with the students who had formed columns on both sides of us. And Huda Sharabi actually has an exchange, a very famous exchange. I was determined the demonstration should resume. When I advanced, a British soldier stepped toward me, pointing his gun, but I made my way past him. As one of the women tried to pull me back, I shouted in a loud voice, Let me die so Egypt shall have an Edith Cavell. And the British soldiers are just stunned. They don't know what to do because they're not used to dealing with women. Mm -hmm. I called upon the women to follow. Long live the boycott. Long live unity. Long live Saad and his companions. Long live total independence. Long live the will of Egyptian women. And then something really interesting happened. A woman behind her leaned in and said in her ear, hey, do you want this to turn violent? Because if the British soldiers harm you, wow. this is going to explode. All of these people will defend you. <laughs> and Huda Shirawi <laughs> paused, looked at the weapons of the British. She could see what that would mean. She took a step back. She didn't push any farther. And instead, they stood still. Wow. We stood still for three hours while the sun blazed down on us. The students, meanwhile, continued to encourage us, saying that the heat of the day would soon abate. I did not care if I suffered sunstroke. The blame would fall on the tyrannical British authority. But we stood up to the heat and suffered no harm. Eventually, Russell Pasha arrived. You've conducted your demonstration in defiance of orders, and now that you have done what you set out to do, you are requested to return home. Yielding in the face of force, we made our way to our carriages. Before returning home, we promised to hold another demonstration. You know, sometimes people make this assumption that, you know, feminism is uh, a Western phenomenon and any manifestations of it in the rest of the world is simply emulating the West. And I have a lot of problems with that way of looking at things. And, and unfortunately, this is uh, a view that's held not only by uh, a lot of people in the Western countries, but also a lot of um, sort of Islamists, right? I mean, they view feminism as something uh, foreign, yeah. right? Something that's not authentic, yeah. right? But I believe that feminism is obviously based on the idea that existing traditional gender systems, gender roles, are not natural. They are constructed. So there are all these internal tensions. And at times of change and upheaval, those internal tensions, you know, people draw on those internal tensions and demand change. So in that sense, you know, if, if gender regime, gender systems are all constructed, in every society at any given time, there is a potential for a feminist consciousness meaning, you know, potential to question the existing gender systems. It's just a matter of conditions being ripe for it, right? So it's, it's like, you know, we should not think that the feminist 
uh, uh, energies of women in the Middle East were somehow imported, that they were foreign or not authentic. This was their movement. Yeah. She became an international figure, guiding women in other countries how to organize. Meanwhile, Britain decides that it's way too expensive to maintain full control in Egypt, so they sort of agreed to semi-independence. Hmm. Victory! Yay! <laughs> Kinda. Sort of. A new constitution is written, and then there are elections, and Waft, now a party, is elected to run the country. And Huda says, great! Item number one, universal suffrage, right? <laughs> Be patient. <laughs> well, there's so many important things to do. Just, just wait. <laughs> we'll get to that. Ladies, please. Uh -huh. So many things that have to happen yes, first. Exactly. And it drags out for about a year. Tale as old as time. The Constitution limits suffrage to males only. Only males yep. shall have the right to vote. Yeah. I don't know why it still surprises me, but it does. <laughs> she also wrote a letter to Saad Zaglul, the leader of the Waft Party, a very angry letter mm. saying how, you know, they have been let down, that they were so much part of the revolution. They helped him so much when he was in exile, but then now they're told to go back home. I want to return to that passage from her memoir that we heard at the beginning. Because the first few sentences are so inspiring about the power of women, but then what she has to say after that, you can hear her frustration yeah. in this moment in 1924, just saying, Ugh! <laughs> yeah. Exceptional women appear at certain moments in history and are moved by special forces. Men view these women as supernatural beings and their deeds as miracles. Indeed, women are bright stars whose light penetrates dark clouds. They rise in times of trouble when the wills of men are tired. In moments of danger, when women emerge by their side, men utter no protest. Yet women's great acts and endless sacrifices do not change men's views of women. Through their arrogance, men refuse to see the capabilities of women. Faced with contradiction, they prefer to raise women above the ordinary human plane instead of making them on a level equal to their own. Men have singled out women of outstanding merit and put them on a pedestal to avoid recognizing the capabilities of all women. Women have felt this in their souls. Their dignity and self-esteem have been deeply touched. Women reflected on how they might elevate their status and worth in the eyes of men. Women rose up to demand their liberation, claiming their social, economic, and political rights. Their leap forward was greeted with ridicule and blame, but that did not weaken their will. Now, Huda Sharawi doesn't stop there. She, she would found uh, the Egyptian Feminist Union as a reaction to that and to seek suffrage for Egyptian women. And then, in 1923, one simple act would become the thing that she is most famous for. So this is important. In 1923, she attended the International Conference of Women in Rome. So she goes to the conference, and on her way back at the Cairo station, she and this other woman who was with her, they lift their veils. They discard their veils at the train station. And that causes a huge scandal, of course, because, you know, after all, Huda Sharawi is a member of a very well-respected upper-class family. I mean, her husband was one of the founders of the Waft Party, okay? But Huda Sharawi stands her ground. She ignores all the criticism and goes around unveiled. 
it's no longer viewed by, by a woman like Huda Sharabi, it's no longer viewed as a sign of privilege, but it's now viewed as a sign of subordination, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, unveiling was on the rise already since the 1910s. It kind of, you know, became normalized. For the rest of her life, she advocated for women in all the ways she could. She managed to get a law passed to raise the marriage age. Mm. So no other girl was going to be forced to get married at age 14. Mm. She died in 1947, an advocate to the very end, and an international feminist figure. And her work is not done. I think she would have been more disappointed if she was alive today. There is no Muslim-majority country in the world, as far as I know, with the exception of Turkey, where uh, family law and personal law is fully secularized. Mm. In Egypt, unfortunately, as, as in other Muslim-majority countries, uh, family law is still um, one of the sources is Islamic law. So, like, there is still not full equality. Mm. Uh, there, certain gains have been made, but it's not, you know, uh, yeah. at, at the point that Buddha Sharawi would probably would like to have it. Because in some ways... You know, just like in this country, you know, there, there, is a there has been a backlash, right, against feminism. And when I talk to my young students, I mean, I identify as a feminist. And for them, it's maybe old-fashioned or maybe they don't realize that a lot of the rights that we enjoy today is really the product of all these, you know, women and their efforts. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, I mean, it saddens me even to see that some young women have... Uh, <laughs> you know, no interest in, in, in feminism. They think it's hating men or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. I, I think education was the one area where women's activism made a huge difference. In 1925, primary education became compulsory for both boys and girls. <laughs> Secondary schools for girls opened up more and more. And then in the late 1920s, women were admitted into the university for the first time. She helped raise a new generation of well-educated Egyptian women. And now, the most unexpected ending to an episode. Hmm. You know, Frank Turner? The famous punk folk musician. Yeah. You know him? Yeah. Him? Well, he wrote a song about Huda Shirawi. <gasps> what? Because, you know, she really is punk when you stop and think about yeah. it. And in fact, Frank Turner made an entire album about forgotten women in history. It's called No Man's Land. Ah, I've heard it. <laughs> the song's called The Lioness. Oh, that's and, about yep, her? That's about her. Whoa. The, the lyrics... The build, the bridge, the whole thing. Oh, it's, it's so good. It is a celebration of Huda's refusal to be cowed. Frank Turner has so generously granted us permission to play the song for you. What? Yep. So, what? turn up the volume, folks. Get ready to feel the rebel spirit of Huda Sharawi in your bones. Listen carefully to those lyrics because they are wow. so right on. Cool. They said that times are hard for honest men, but she didn't give a damn because she wasn't one of them. I don't mean to imply that she ever told a lie, but she was raised in the harem and told to keep quiet. Stepped off the train and into history. She isn't.
just young women don't underestimate、uh, these women and their struggles. They, they really struggle for us in, in a sense. And long live feminism. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Special thanks to Professor Eifer Karakaya Stump and William and Mary for introducing us to Huda Sharawi. You can find her memoir and more on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where you'll also find links to Frank Turner's album, No Man's Land, which I highly recommend. Other music was provided by the William and Mary Middle Eastern Music Ensemble, directed by Anne Rasmussen, Brian Bolger, Aaron Kenny, Kevin McLeod, Eric Satie, and God Mode. Special thanks also to my student assistants on site, Caleb Slama, Shelby Durant, and Madison Miles. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post all kinds of additional content each week, including photos of Katie and Professor Stump, lots of photos of Huda Sharawi, and much more. Or visit our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, or just click on the show notes. You can become a supporter of the podcast for as little as a buck a month. Thank you so much for donating. Thanks for listening.